Uh, good evening. My name is Joe Quinlan. I'm the Chief Market Strategist for U.S. Trust, Private Wealth Management, Bank of America. That's we keep on going from there, but I'll stop there. Um, it's a pleasure for you to be here tonight. Um, we're going to talk about, a little bit about the global economy. Um, the book I have here is called 101 Things Every Investor Should Know About the Global Economy. Um, there's no test after this, number one. Number two, um, I'm not going to go through all 101 of these uh, items. I do urge you to look at it at some point. I think it's available uh, online. And I'm not going to talk too long because I want to have a conversation with you about the global economy and what's happening. And I kind of frame the book from the content of America. Like, where's America uh, in the global economy? What's our position and what's our, um, what, what's our place? And I wrote the book for two reasons um, with my team. And it took about a year to pull it all together. Um, you know, for the first reason is that the United States, we're not an island. Onto ourselves. We're a big, powerful economy. I'm very bullish about the U.S. economy in general. Um, I love our manufacturing capabilities, service capabilities, uh, military, the U.S. dollar. But at the end of the day, we're only 20, 22 percent of GDP, gross domestic product, globally speaking. So, you know, we're just a slice of the pie. Um, when it comes to population, we're less than 5 percent of the world population. So, I think it's very important for investors here in the United States to understand what's happening outside our borders, and I think that's a challenge. Um, I teach at the university level, at New York University, Fordham University, um, American University, and, and, and I really kind of challenge my students to kind of get outside the mindset. Now, when you're going to school in Manhattan, you think everything begins and ends, you know, with the East River and, and, and kind of on the island, nothing, nothing else, there's no other place out there. Um, so that was number one, just to kind of give U.S. investors perspective on the rest of the world. And then number two, and I'll be honest with you, one, the other reason I wrote the book is that just to kind of use my words carefully, most Americans are unaware of the rest of the world. I mean, would you agree with me? Um, I would go say, I'm going to go so far to say, like, you know, almost economically illiterate in terms of what's going on in China, what's going on in the Middle East. Um, why is the European Union so important to the United States? Uh, what's happening in South America and Brazil? So, you know, there's a deficit there. Um, it's, we've got a trade deficit. We've got a, uh, a current account deficit, federal budget deficit. But I think the biggest deficit out there is our knowledge of the rest of the world. It would make us better citizens, global citizens, if we understood what was happening. And it would help us better connect the dots. And that's hugely important because when I was starting this business in 1980 on Wall Street, it was a pretty simple world. You know, there was the UK, there was Europe, there was Japan, and the United States. And there was a couple of outliers or emerging markets, maybe Mexico. It was a pretty simple world to figure out. But then as we went deeper, uh, into the, the 1980s, 1990s, and of course today. It's pretty complex. It's a pretty complex world out there. So, and it's confused a lot of investors. I mean, every day I wake up, I turn on you know, a couple of websites from Australia, the, the South China Sea, Morning Sea, Singapore Times, I mean, all these newspapers, kind of get a feel what's happening out there. Because it's amazing, any corner of the world, whatever that impact has, can ping into our markets, and vice versa. And we've never had this before. So to me, there's twofold reasons for writing the book in the sense that the world's a lot more complicated, and I think we Americans are falling even further behind in understanding what's it all about. So that's the key reason. Um, the plan of the lecture, I'm just going to pull a couple of items um, from each chapter and talk about them. And I said, this is going to be brief. I'll open it up shortly for any questions on the table. Um, the biggest issue, one of the key kind of takeaways I want you to have is I wrote about, I wrote about this recently. It's, it's simply this, the geopolitical freebie investors have enjoyed for the last 65 years could be over. Now, what do I mean, what do I mean by that, the geopolitical freebie? Simply this, since 1950 to today, we've enjoyed a pretty stable geopolitical backdrop, thanks to the United States, thanks to U.S. muscular power when it comes to military power, the soft power, the economic power of the United States. But I find it amazing here, I mean, you know, kind of don't chime in or think about this. It's amazing that Russia annexed a portion of a sovereign country in Central Europe. Amazing. The first territorial annexation, aggression, since the end of World War II. Amazing. Wake up one day, wow, what just happened? I find it amazing that this thing called ISIS is redrawing the map of Iraq and Syria. Now, I know there was a time, they would never, no one would have ever thought of doing that because they would have been hammered right out of the box. I find it amazing that Japan and China are really going at it. I mean, if you're not paying attention to that part of the world, you should. Economics and trade has always trumped the foreign diplomacy 
But I can tell you, the tensions are rising over these islands. And the Japanese give it one name, the Chinese another name, and it's, it's quite frightening. I've spent a lot of time over in China. I do lectures over there. I spent a lot of time in Japan. And, and the intensity level is just that. It's pretty intense right now. So you've got these three geopolitical hotspots out there that we've got to watch very carefully. We've got to watch it very carefully because they, individually they're very important. But more importantly is this. There's no sheriff, right? The sheriff kind of left the stall or the station. The sheriff says, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And the sheriff's the United States, right? Recent Pew research polls show that 52% of Americans think we should mind our own business overseas and let the countries figure it out themselves. Isn't that amazing? And maybe we're tired of the war, we're tired of the cost, blood, sweat, and tears, the treasure that we've, we've expanded here in the last couple, in the last decade. But to me, that, that's a new configuration for investing. Because these ge geopolitical hotspots, they can turn really hot, really to a fast boil, really quickly, and create market dynamics that your portfolios aren't set up for. So we can talk more about what's going on in Russia and Crimea. We can talk more about the Middle East, which is just a colossal, colossal mess. And then Asia is where I'm really worried about. And I'll give you an example about Asia. Roughly every day, 400 Japanese fighter pilots are scrambled to go up and play chicken with the Chinese fighter pilots. 400 a day. You know what's going to happen someday. What? They're going to hit each other. There's going to be an in international incident that creates nationalist tensions between those two countries that are great markets for U.S. companies. So we've got to keep an eye on that. So that, that's number one when it comes to geopolitical freebie. That is more kind of more tactical. The more secular one is about the rise of the rest, you know, the rise of the emerging markets. We talk a lot about it at U.S. Trust. The numbers are compelling. You know, we're looking at the, you know, the emerging markets collectively, whether that's you know, India, China, Brazil, South America, Africa, and so forth. They're now 50% of world GDP, which is quite impressive. They're huge consumers. They've got a lot of wealth. They used to be price takers. Now they're price setters, right? What we pay for energy, what you and I pay for food, cost of travel. We used to drive that. We used to have a monopoly on, on prices and the demand. Now we've got competition. But having said that, I'm not sure China, India, and Brazil, I don't think they view the world the way we do, like the, the West, right? The world we, we, we created, the United States created after the war, was very benign, relatively speaking. I'm going to put that in quotes, benign, because I've got, I've got a lot of pushback uh, when you kind of look at the military adventures of the United States over the last 65 years. I understand that. But a lot what the United States created, the global economic framework coming out of the war, was for the benefit of the globe, right? Global trade, global investment, use of the dollars of world reserve currencies. What's the greatest, what has, the been, what has been the greatest beneficiary? Who's, who's promoted more global trade than any other organization in the last 65 years? Anyone want to take a guess? I said, I want to make this interactive. The U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy, right? They're all over the world. They keep the sea lanes open. If you're going to do anything, you know, down in Malaysia, Singapore, Northeast Asia, and so forth, they're there. They keep the lanes open. So that's very important. So we created a benign macro backdrop for the good of the global commons, right, for the good of the global world. But when you talk to China and you talk to India, they want to be at the table. They want to be a big global player. But I'm not quite sure they're doing it for the world. They're doing it for themselves. And that's two different things when it comes to the ramifications, the knock-on effects. So to me, how do we accommodate Russia to Chinese, the Poles, the South Africans, into this new world order? They want a seat at the table. They want to be heard at the IMF and the World Bank. China has gone so far to say, you know what, we're going to create our own World Bank. You know, and quite frankly, China, they give out more money every year than the World Bank combined. I mean, the World Bank by a factor of 10, right? China is the World Bank for Africa. Think of it that way in that sense. And that gives them a lot of power and a lot of sway. So to me, there's a new world order. I hate using that term, but there's kind of a, there's a tension point between like, well, how we used to do it as an investor back in 1980 when I started versus today. And my biggest fear is not that the, the rest succeed, right? I'm not afraid of China succeeding. I'm not afraid of Brazil rising. I'm not afraid of India getting its act together. And that's not going to happen. We'll talk about that. I'm afraid they're going to fail, right? We should be afraid they're going to fail. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. It's like, oh my God, Joe, you know, if China rises, we decline. Or if Indians are coming, we're in trouble. No, no, no. It's a win-win. And I know there's displacements when it comes to certain industries, wages, and so forth. But every day I get up and I pray the Chinese get it right. 
I pray the Indians can just figure out how to, you know, get someplace from A to B, and they can't they have a hard time doing that. I get up every day and hope Brazil can pull off the World Cup. So far, so good. The Olympics will be really interesting. We want the emerging markets to succeed. But in Washington, that's not the view, because if they win, we lose. And we've got to get rid of that mentality, because we've got to accommodate the rest of the world as they come to the table. So to me, kind of, you know, the, the word, like, the, go back to my first kind of entry, so to speak, is the geopolitical freebie is over for investors. We've enjoyed a very benign geopolitical backdrop in the last 65 years that's created very good returns here in the United States. It's really helped a lot of U.S. earnings for multinationals. But I do feel quite, quite, quite confidently the ground is shifting, and we'll see where it goes. Another entry, so to speak, another key uh, point or kind of force out there we watch very carefully is the, the emerging market consumer. They're for real, right? And whether you're in Myanmar, whether you're in Poland, Lithuania, down in South Africa, Tanzania, it's very exciting to see these people excited about having a cell phone. It's very exciting to see them think about having a computer or you know, maybe someday owning a car. I got a very good friend in China. Um, he's about 32, 33 years old. He's a professor. He's the first member of his family going at back, I don't know, 5,000 years that ever went to college and whoever owns a car. It's amazing. He owns a car, and his parents are afraid of it, right? They sit in the back. They're afraid to get up and sit in the front seat because, Dad, if I touch this one button, it's going to explode or it's going to go off the rail. But they're so proud of that son because he made it. They would have never dreamt of having a car. He travels. They, his parents, grandparents, have never left China, never wanted to leave China. But he's emblematic of a new global force out there that's very powerful and very, I think, bullish for a lot of U.S. companies. They're young, they're educated, they're hyper-connected, they're leveraging technology. And part and parcel of this is women. I'll talk about womenomics later. I'm very excited about women, their role in the Middle East and Africa and South America, and even here in our country, as far as that's concerned. So the middle class, 2.4 billion right now, according to some McKinsey estimates in the emerging markets, going to go to 2 billion in the next plus, in the next, say, 10, 15 years. That's going to create a whole new host of opportunities for U.S. companies. And right now, China already is the largest car market in the world. Has anyone been to China lately? I'm sure a lot of people, right? It's great that they're driving cars in China. The bad news is they don't know how to drive, right? They don't know green from yellow, yellow from red, and it's just like, it's a colossal mess. Um, you really take your life in your hands when you're driving over there. So don't drive, have someone else, because they, the they know when the semis are coming down the wrong way on the highway. Because believe me, I've lived that. But it's a powerful story. Facebook and Brazil. Brazil is the second largest, largest, uh, uh, second largest market in the world for Facebook because the Brazilians love to chat, right? They just love to show off, talk, talk well into the night. They love, they love connectivity. Nigeria, believe it or not, Nigeria, they consume more Guinness than they do in Ireland. And that's saying a lot, given the Irish, because that's, you know, that's a three-course meal, you know, three times a day for the Irish. But Nigeria, I mean, it's very, Moscow, Moscow, there's more mall space in Moscow than all the rest of Europe, when you think about it, given the consumption that's coming out of there. So we see a lot of upside. You know, another one when it comes to the Internet, one of my favorite statistics, you know, we're all wired. I've got more cords in my room that if there's a fire here and God, that's not going to happen. I want to scare anyone. I'm on the third floor. I could rappel out my window with all the cords I have and hit the ground with plenty of slack. I've got too many passwords, too many devices, too many. It's making me crazy. But here's my point. 60% of the world's never logged onto the internet. Think about that. 60% of the world has never done what we do where, where and when we shouldn't be doing it. Think about it. So, and that's very powerful dynamic. The digital economy, Jared Cohen, Eric Schmidt, you should read that book. That's a good book. I'm going to throw out some books at you. But to me, the emerging market consumer is for real. It's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. I remember traveling. Way back when, down in South America um, and, and over in Southeast Asia in the early 1980s, mid-1980s, I remember, and it wasn't cruel, but I just kind of was, it was part of an experiment, but if, if I had two cans of Coke, I could hire a driver all day in, outside of Bangkok. He would take me all day. If he gave two, that's how powerful that brand is. Now, they've grown up now. Now, now they've got a cell phone, they've got a computer. They're thinking bigger. The, whole, the world is wide open to them. That's very exciting. And I think it's very bullish for U.S. companies, the global leaders, the brand leaders. 
but it does create competition, right? These consumers are workers. There's competition in this space for you know, setting food prices, energy prices, and also work. Another big part of the, the emerging market consumer is healthcare. I mean, you know, we're all talking about you know, spending billions and billions of dollars on drugs uh, here in America, but believe me, the healthcare curve expenditures in the emerging markets are, is gonna go through the roof. Whether it's diabetes, obesity, all these kind of quote-unquote Western diseases are now making their way to parts of China, the emerging markets, and so forth. So I see a lot of opportunity for a lot of U.S. healthcare companies. Speaking of healthcare, another entry, global demographics, right? The young versus the old. It's very interesting in the sense we've got 7 billion people on planet Earth. Half of them live in the cities. Half of them live in the rural areas, which is kind of an inflection point. Estimates around 2022, 2023, we're going to have 8 billion people. And then probably by 2040, we could be at 9 billion people on planet Earth. Uh, that sounds like a lot. I think we can accommodate that. But it does put a lot of pressure and strain on the global infrastructure. Right now, of the 7 billion people, around half are under the age of 30 years old. And India is amazing, right? In India is 600 million people in India under the age of 24. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, that scares me. I got a 24-year-old, so, you know, it's like, wow. There's 600 million of these people? Forget it. I mean, think of it that way. Africa alone. Africa is 333 million, million people under the age of 24. But these are the new consumers. These are the people that are digitally just going like, to you know, blow us away in terms of like, what's coming down, connectivity, and a more integrated global economy. I'm fascinated by how integrated the global economy is today, but we haven't seen anything yet. And some people think, well, Joe, that's going to be evil. It's going to be, you know, that's going to create problems. Perhaps, but I've got, to, I've got to see the other side of that and say to me, it's exciting. It's very exciting about the, I call it the iPhone generation, uh, and I'm not doing a commercial for Apple. Um, but nevertheless, to me, that's, it's hugely important. Then on the other spe spectrum, there's global grain. And The Economist did a nice cover story recently. But really, right now, 900 million people over the age of 60. It's going to double in the next decade or so, if not short, sooner. The fastest growing cohort in the world is the 80-plus crowd. I mean, think about that. It is amazing. And that's just in, it's not just in the United States. It's not just in Germany or Italy. It's in China as well. China's got a huge old-age population they've got to take care of, right? They're going to go, go old before they grow rich. So to me, the backdrop, you know, the demographics, there's lots of ways to play this through healthcare, through leisure, global travel, and so forth. Um, and we see a lot of opportunities there because it's a very interesting dynamic how it's evolving. You know, the iPhone generation versus global grain. That, that's how we kind of frame it. Another issue kind of t talking about how integrated the world is, talk a little bit here quickly about global trade. Um, this is something, this is what makes me crazy, okay? And I'm, I'm kind of speaking for my mouth, it's not U.S. trust. Um, I, I always, my, my wife gets crazy. When she comes home and she'll buy a piece of clothing, I'll say, yeah, where, where's it from? She's like, oh, God, I knew you were going to ask me that. If you don't buy a piece of clothing and you don't know where it's made, it's like buying a car not, not knowing what make it is. Is it a BMW? Is it a Ford? I mean, so to me, and I say that because U.S. consumers don't appreciate imports, how cheap it is to, and how much it puts money in our pocket that we've got a global trading system that's relatively open. We've got to work to make it even more open. That's hugely important. So right now, world exports is a percent of GDP around 32%. So world exports is a of world GDP, 32%. In 1950, it was 5.5%, right? Remember the first half of the 20th century, right? Two wars, global depression. There was no trade. There was more protectionism, blatant protectionism. Today, in the last 65 years, we've enjoyed a phenomenal global open trading environment, which is very beneficial to U.S. companies. Everyone in this room, I'm going to go out, I mean, I, well, I'm not going to go out on a limb. I'll go out on a limb later, not yet. Um, let me just put it this way. Since 1974-75, every month virtually, we've run a trade deficit, merchandise trade deficit. We're conditioned in the United States to think, like, we're getting the short end of the stick because they're importing more to us than we're exporting, hence the deficit is a negative. But counterintuitively, we always think trade is a negative, and it worries me. On Capitol Hill, a lot of consumer surveys point to the fact that, you know, when it comes to trade, let's just do it here at home. No, 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 you don't want to do that. The shirts we wear, the clothes, the shoes, the food, the services, they're getting better, they're getting cheaper because we're accessing other countries vis-a-vis -vis imports. Exports is a great untold story, and I, many of my colleagues at U.S. Trust have heard me talk about this, but the top exporter in the world is not China, okay? It's not Germany. 
It's the United States. When you add goods plus services, the top exporter in the world is the United States. And it's almost a residual. No one thinks of it that way. Exports combine only like 13, 14, 15 percent of GDP. It's picking up a little bit. But we're exporting powerhouse. And we don't even know it. And we don't appreciate it. And it's very clear because we're so anti-trade. How can the number one exporter in the world be so anti-trade? Because we don't understand trade. We don't understand the benefits of trade. We don't understand the numbers behind the trade. So to me, it's very frustrating in that sense. And who are you exporting to? You know, Mexico, China, Brazil, all these emerging market consumers that are now having more per capita income, and they love our brands, and, and they love our products, our services. And so we need to be the champions of global trade. But what's happening now? We got two big trade deals out there floundering, right? TTIP, the big transatlantic trade agreement, and TTP, I, I can't stand these kind of abbreviations, make me crazy, but that's what trade negotiators do well. Uh, but we've got two big trade agreements, one Asia Pacific, one with uh, transatlantic, and there's no support on Capitol Hill. There's no support on the White House. And this is a historic opportunity to crack open these markets and help drive more growth, more jobs, more income for our, for our workers. And they're just floundering. They're languishing because trade is bad, right? The deficit means we're getting screwed and that they're at our cost, our workers, our incomes, and it's not true. That's what worries me, kind of a policy front. But it gets even more interesting because here's, here's kind of a, another fact that's not well understood. When we do business around the world, we don't trade that much. I said $2.2 trillion. That's the latest annual figures. Over and above that figure, we then sell $5 trillion worth of goods and services through foreign affiliates, right? We don't export hamburgers, right? We don't export Starbucks coffees. We don't even export cars. We don't export capital machinery. We make it there, right? We make it in Belgium. We make it in France. We make it in China. Then we sell it in China. I'm sure a lot of you here in this room run big global enterprises, and you know the mantra, build where you sell, because you've got to be close to your consumers. You've got to be close to your customers. You have to provide after-sales services. You have to leverage local labor, lower resources. So at the end of the day, the trade statistics are lousy measurements. I've written a lot about this. I've written a book about it. When it comes to how we do business, we're on the ground. Good U.S. companies and European companies, Chinese, Japanese, they don't export stuff. That's, you, know, you don't do that. You have to be on the ground. So when you add up over and above what we export, it's above $5 trillion, right? And I'm adding up all the hamburgers and Starbucks and Subway and Domino's Pizza, but I'm also talking about cars, capital machinery, banks, investment banking. Think about that. So we don't even understand how we do business, right? And I know it's the first thing you're thinking. Well, Joe, that's called outsourcing, right? That's called you know, offshoring. Outsourcing is a dirty word, right? When we invest overseas, well, we must be leaving some workers behind. But that's a great myth, right? When Ford is operating in China, when GE's in Poland, IBM's in South Africa, when Microsoft in Brazil, when they're down there, over there, up there, creating jobs, working there within those foreign affiliates, they're creating jobs and income here back in the United States. Because these foreign affiliates are, are not independent islands. They're out there, say the Ford, G, GM Ford plant in China. They're pulling in product from the US. They're pulling in financing. They're keeping the designing people busy back in Michigan. Marketing, on down the line. They're creating jobs. Now, I'll give you the best example. When the U.S. automobile market crashed in 2009, 2010, what saved the U.S. automobile manufacturers? Not the government. I know you're going to say the government. Well, they did. They helped out. But China's market was so strong during 2009 and 2010 that General Motors and Ford, particularly General Motors, they did pretty well. That foreign affiliate over in China kind of added a lot of heft to the earnings and made a bad situation from getting even worse. Does everyone understand that? That's hugely important to understand. Because we have a plant in Belgium doesn't mean we just displace 16,000 workers here in the United States. And there are displacements, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, outsourcing makes us stronger, not weaker. Now, I've been thrown off Capitol Hill for saying that. So I think I'm in a more friendlier environment here. And you can take me on later. But they just don't understand that. I mean, it, it just makes me crazy, right? They're not independent of They leverage locally. They borrow locally. They hire locally. They have to. You know, that's how you play the game. So to me, this outsourcing evilness that's perpetuated in the press 
makes us all ignorant. And when we're all ignorant, we're dangerous. And when we're all dangerous, I want to move to Greenland. I mean, but we'll talk about that later, the Arctic. But the key point is, over and above our exports, our foreign affiliate sales, and it's a very powerful dynamic. And that, and that's, that raises the question, so where are we investing? Where, where's all this capital? Or where are all these foreign affiliate sales? First thing, Adi, you're going to tell me China. No, not China. Where do we invest the most overseas? You know, when it comes to GE, IBM, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Europe, the European Union, right? Why the European Union? Because corporations don't go overseas for cheap labor. They go overseas for wealthy customers, for skilled labor. That does not lead you to China. It doesn't lead you to Thailand or Indonesia. It leads you to the UK, to Germany, France, and Japan. So our biggest overseas foreign direct investment position is in the EU. So a lot of investors were caught off guard because when the EU had the financial crisis, we got really worried because the EU is a big economic entity. It's 16 trillion plus. It's a fabulous creation. They, don't, they can never figure anything out. They're always two years behind. It's a dysfunctional family. But they're hugely important to corporate America. So when they tanked in 2011, 2012, there were problems. And I know we're going to talk about corporate taxes later, the corporate inversions in Ireland. We can get into that later. But corporations, yes, they go overseas for corporate tax reasons because we drive them overseas. We got the highest corporate tax rates on planet Earth. And that's something we've got to fix. I'll talk about the policy fix uh, in a moment. But the silliness that we're investing in Mexico and China for cheap labor, no. We do some of that, but at the end of the day, we want to get to the wealthy consumers and the skilled labor. So that's outsourcing. Another piece of you know, 101 things to know is that thing called insourcing, right? Now, we're always worried that, like, all this, my God, all this capital is flowing overseas to plants, equipment. We're left holding the bag. No one's doing anything. Nonsense. The U.S. is very unique. We're not only the top supplier of foreign direct investment, we're the top recipient. It's not China, right? Easily, year in and year out. We attract more capital from Siemens, Toyota, from the Brazilians now than, than China combined. We kill China when it comes to FDI year in and year out. Just look at the numbers. They're in the book. Why do they come to the United States? Relatively speaking, and I'm preaching to the crowd here, we're pretty wealthy. We've got a lot of fluence. We've got some skilled labor. We've got good universities. We've got to knock on wood a good infrastructure. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's not that good as it used to be. But we have a lot. We, have, we respect the rule of law, right? That's hugely important. If you bring an intellectual property patent to this country, we'll respect it. You take that same patent to China, they'll probably rip it off instead of respect it, probably. Although Chinese are getting better at that. So the largest recipient of all this foreign capital from these foreign multinationals is the United States. And so if, if anyone here from South Carolina, and North Carolina, Kentucky, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, what's the common denominator? The foreign automobile companies has transformed the South. It's, it's amazing. You go to Spartanburg, South Carolina, look at that BMW plant. It's amazing. It goes on and on and on. They just added a third shift, a new production cycle with the SUV. BMW's number one plant in the world, believe it or not, is in South Carolina, creating great jobs. Now, they're down there for a reason, lots of reasons. I know, non-unionized sales, good incentives, but they love the workers. They're productive. Toyota in Kentucky, right, in Texas. I mean, so to me, at the end of the day, we're not recognizing the fact that what goes out also flows in. And it's very dynamic. It creates a lot of jobs and incomes, and it really helps drive our economy. It's very important that we be smart about how we you know, view FDI, foreign direct investment, going out, because it also comes in, and we want to continue to encourage that. So we see that as a hugely positive. Okay, quickly moving to another chapter we do in the book is on competitiveness. Um, we look at various metrics, productivity, hours worked, uh, education levels, and there's good news and bad news for the United States, because we're kind of in the middle. The latest global competitive rankings were number five, and that, that's not bad. We slipped a little bit during the crisis, now we're back up to five. You take those surveys with a grain of salt, but at the end of the day, what makes us competitive is our manufacturing capabilities, the energy, the, the dollar status, innovation, and so forth. I'll talk about energy quickly. I talked about it this morning. But what's driving a lot of our competitiveness is that we're an energy powerhouse right now. If you look at our increase in oil production, it's phenomenal. 
It's, 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 it's phenomenal. We've created two new super oil fields since 2007, Bakken and Eagle Ford. A super oil field is a field that produces a million barrels a day. These two fields I'm talking about were hardly producing anything in 2007. But the combination of good state policies, entrepreneurship, horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracking, and lo and behold, the United States <clears throat> already produces more natural gas than Russia, and we're shortly producing more oil than Saudi Arabia. It's a phenomenal story. Another book to read is called The Frackers. Anyone read that book, The Frackers? I always joke, it's not the movie, The Flockers, it's The Frackers, the book. Read this book. Very important book, easy to read, written by a Wall Street Journal, and it just tells the story of the Wildcatters taking risk after risk, being down to the last dime, making it work, and changing the global oil equation. Why is it so important? Because it's making us more competitive. Our electricity costs are 50 to 60% lower than Germany, China, and Japan. It's filtering down into U.S. household income. It's putting more disposable income into households. It's helping with our competitiveness. It's drawing in foreign direct investment. It's creating a lot of royalties for the federal government. And oh, by the way, the energy revolution here in the United States was without Washington. This was without Washington. They were, they were heading to sands. They had to put out the fire and so forth. Another good book. Anyone read Stress Test? Tim Geithner? I, I, good book. Kind of wonkish. Gets in little weeds here. You know, he's got a benign version of history because he was there. Uh, you know, I get it. Um, but it's a very good book about the blow by blow by blow that happened. And, you know, we were pretty close to the edge. And, but nevertheless, the energy revolution happened when we all had our head down and everyone in the media told us that China was number one. Not true. Still the United States. Still competitive. But there's some failings. We've got to do some work here, right? How do we maintain our competitiveness into the second half of this decade and beyond? The infrastructure is crumbling, right? Was it Joe Biden that said, you know, when I go to LaGuardia, I think I'm in a third world country? Well, he should go to JFK, Kennedy. He's in a fifth world country. That's, you know, he's got to go there. But the infrastructure needs a lot, a lot of work. Everyone knows that. The public school systems need a lot of work. There's, we don't save enough money as individuals. The corporate tax code rate, it's just, you know, no one understands us. We're rerouting money between Ireland and Netherlands and Pluto and back again. It's so complicated that if you, your son or daughter, nephews, nieces need a job, you just go, if you can figure that out, you're golden uh, in that sense. Healthcare is a huge issue, right? That's a drag on economic growth, right? It's 17% of GDP. If you took our healthcare industry out of the U.S. economy, pulled it out, and made it a separate ent entity, it'd be the eighth largest economy in the world. It's double the size of India, as I always say, but it's like India's economy. It's corrupt, inefficient, bloated, no one knows what's going on, and we just keep going on day after day after day. I don't know anything about the Affordable Care Act, other than I know that my daughter's getting off it in a couple months, and she's finally waking up to the fact that, like, wow, this is going to cost me money. It's going to cost me money. What do I do now? I've been telling you for two years to prepare, but we'll work on it when I get home. So, We'll see how it plays out, but healthcare is taking more disposable income out of households. It's overlaying more cost on the corporations, as big as Bank of America and as small as the guy out here that's got 10 workers. It's, gonna, it's a competitive threat, so to speak, that needs to be addressed. And speaking of competitive threats, my opinion, and I'll, I'll share it with you, I think something that we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot is over immigration. We've got to get smarter about immigration. And whether legals or illegals, the world is still being a path to our door. We have to seize that moment, right? And, you know, some of these smart Chinese, Indians, Israelis, they're like, you know, forget it. I can't take it anymore, the green card process. My wife can't work. I'm just going to go home. And the Chinese are very smart. I got a good friend. He was an MIT engineer, smart, very smart guy. Um, just got so fed up with the immigration process, the green card, because his wife couldn't work. And she, she's a brilliant scientist as well that you know, he went back to Beijing, he started talking to the locals there, and sure enough, lo and behold, Beijing kind of made an offer, like, come back to Beijing, we'll give you that nice apartment over there, you can have as many kids as you want, here's this fabulous lab with the greatest technology, you know, the latest and greatest, go for it, do what you want to do. And guess what? He left the United States with his wife. That was our loss. They call them sea turtles, right? The Chinese always have a way of describing everything. So the sea turtles, are finding their way back to China at our expense because we can't figure out how to keep them here. So immigration is hugely important. However, it's been kicked down the road, right? We're not going to do immigration reform this year, and it's been 25 years hence. So to me, we're undermining our long-term competitiveness 
because correct me if I'm wrong, I think we're all immigrants in some, some shape or fashion. If, if, if you're not, see me afterwards. I want to know where you're from uh, originally. So think about it that way. We need immigration, smart immigration, smart immigration that works for both parties. Uh, chapter 5, briefly, I talk about kind of real assets. Um, the only thing I want to emphasize there is that the best way to accumulate, accumulate wealth, compound wealth, are through dividend-paying stocks, dividend payers. If you look at the S&P returns since 1940, 40 to 45% in that range have come from the dividends, right? So don't be out chasing the latest IPO or the latest social media craze. You know, let me go for it, you know, if you want to, make it a small percentage of the portfolio. But you have in your portfolio the dividend payers, the companies that have been around through wars, Great Depressions, gazillion administrations, and they're doing well globally now. I think the wind is at their back. Those are the companies that want to be part and parcel of your portfolio, the dividend payers. And kind of a little kind of a trivia, uh, since 1992, between 1992 and 2012, the best performing sectors of the S&P have been information technology, 10.2% annualized returns, and energy, 11.5. So IT and energy, and they just happen to be two sectors we're overweight right now. And when we move in and out of the markets, you know, we're not prone, we don't stick, you know, when things change, we change. Our favorite emerging markets right now are Mexico, Poland, and South Korea. Now, it's kind of an odd lot, but not when you think about it. South Korea, phenomenal, innovative, educated country that has a one company that gives Apple fits. What's the one, you know, and Apple, Apple's hard to, like, shake, right? I mean, they got that thing buttoned up pretty well. Samsung. That's a homegrown company, creativity, that speaks volumes about their capabilities. We like Mexico, young population, energy reform, industrial sector tied into our great industrial sector. They're going to do well. They've still got a lot of problems with the drug cartels. Hopefully that gets cleaned up over time. The middle class evolves, but we're still bullish there. And then we like Poland. Has anyone been to Poland? Phenomenal. It's a great country. No one talks about Poland, right? One of the largest economies in Europe, one of the largest populations, they're doing fabulously well at home, but then they're tied into that great industrial base called Germany, right? Because they've made a pack and they've done a lot of deals. So we see a lot of good companies uh, emerge out of there. We're very bullish on commodities, agricultural commodities in particular, because I talked about the emerging markets, these new consumers having more per capita income. When you have more per capita, in, when you have more per capita income, what happens? All right, you don't drive your taxi around all day for some guy from New York for two cans of Coke. You eat more protein, right? More fruits and vegetables. And the more protein they demand, the more they put on the global demand for corn, soybean, and so forth, and down the line. So that's we're very optimistic. I'm worried about global climate change and the droughts and the supply constraints coming out of Australia and other parts of the world uh, in that sense. So that, that's kind of chapter five. Chapter six, end quickly, you know, kind of a, it's odds and ends. You know, I had to throw a bucket, you know, kind of wrap it all up. But our favorite commodity is water. And I've been out here before at the Aspen Ideas Festival talking about water. There's some real crisis out there. We're hitting it, not crisis point. I think we got enough water. It's like, how do we store it, treat it, desalinate it? You know, wastewater treatment is hugely important. Has anyone seen The Last Call at the Oasis? The movie, The Last Call at the Oasis. I'll give you kind of a little tip. I'll tip you off a little bit. It's 99% very depressing. You know, it's the end of the world, and like, you know, it's, one professor, oh, we're screwed, you know, it's a great bite. But then the last 1% of the movie, it's a happy story. We, we, live, we, go, we, we, we go on. Because we learn from the Israelis, the Singaporeans, and what we're doing here about treating it, storing it, and so forth. But there's a lot of water stress around the globe, right? And I, it's ironic saying it here. There's a, I, I could stick, you know, drill a hole out here and you hit water. But, you know, when you go to the parts of this country, you go to the Middle East, you go to China and India, you go really around the world, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. It's underpriced, which means it's underinvested, and it means we're using it very haphazardly. So we still, still like water. Womenomics is another key theme. We think one of the greatest agents of economic change, future driving force, are going to be women. And we're going to want to invest in companies that get that, that understand that. A lot of studies show already that if you get women, more women on boards, the more conservative, risk-free, but the higher returns that the company performs at. But just women in general, particularly in the emerging markets, they're better, better educated and they're leveraging IT. So it's not, it's not brawn anymore, it's brains, right? When it's brains, then the, the, playing, the playing field is more level for women as opposed to brawn. So it's a hugely important opportunity, and we see that, and we're going to invest in a lot more uh, companies. 
Um, on down the line, a couple of global obesity, I touched on that. It's an epidemic, and it's not just in the U.S. It's all over. It's amazing. It's amazing to go to China and see heavy people. Amazing. Amazing. I, I think the Chinese are amazed themselves, too. Uh, the last one, and I'll stop there, is just the marching machines. Uh, the, second, the, the, the Second Machine Age is another book you should read, and I've seen on the program there's a lot of talk about that. But I think it's, it's very important, and I haven't figured this out yet, but there is, we're coming to an inflection point where automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, they're not just taking away the blue-collar jobs anymore, folks. They're taking away white-collar jobs. They're taking away jobs from surgeons. They're taking away jobs from journalists, right? You can do the sports recap now on a computer, right? So, I, you know, I don't need the box score right up about the Phillies from a guy sitting down at the stadium. That can be done by big data and, the, you know, the computer. So it's a very interesting what's happening, and be, be on the curve. Particularly if, you got, if you're ready to send a son or daughter to college, you know, I might think twice about it. I mean, I hope I'm the last guy to pay $200,000 for a history degree for my son. No, I'm kidding. Um, not knock on what he's doing. He's doing all right. Uh, I, but it, I sit, on two, I sit on a couple of boards at universities. People say, where's the bubble? Higher education. I mean, the cost of education versus what you get in your return in the, in the face of 21st century technology and how move it, quickly it moves, watch out. You better, I always tell my students, you better be on the right side of the digital divide or you're going to have a hard time. And then, I, then when they start thinking, God, I've got to go home and live with my parents, then they get a little you know, more motivated. But there's a lot of boomerangers out there, right? You saw the New York Times. So, but really... We, we, you know, it's not just industrial robots, right, in, 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 on the factory floor. It, it's service robots now in the homes, right? I was with a Finnish company a couple of weeks ago. It's amazing, um, this company. I, can't, I won't tell you because I can't. Um, but they, they make um, self-serving robotic mowers for golf courses, right? So there's a golf course outside of Philadelphia where I live. It hires 50 people groundskeeping. When they get this new machine from Finland, they're going to cut their workers from 50 to 5. Because the machines don't complain. They work at night. They're very quiet. They won't be out there when you're trying to hit off the back nine. But they're going to take 50 to 5. I'm not just talking about guys working on a golf course. I'm talking about surgeons and so forth. So it's coming. And it's, that's, that's ongoing, but we're almost at an inflection point. It's not just the blue-collar jobs anymore. It's the white-collar Okay, we got about 15 minutes left. I want to just wrap up. Um, I appreciate your time. I think our most precious commodity, unequivocally, is time. So thank you for sharing it with us, myself, tonight. Thank you. We've got mics. India. You started to talk about India, then you stopped, suggesting it was dysfunctional, even with the new leadership. Maybe, I, I know everyone's excited about the new leader. Um, I'll, be, you know, I'll be in Japan as well. Um, I, I've been to India and, you know, I just, you know, it takes me two weeks to fortify myself to get over, go over there, and it takes me two weeks to get over it when I come back. Um, they want more people than China. Um, you know, the, the key issue, about power in India is very decentralized. So you can have a very powerful guy at the top, but if he moves the needle locally, I'll be surprised. China's kind of different, right? I mean, China's got a very powerful organization at the top, 9, 11 people. And, you know, but they, the provinces do a lot of stuff. At the end of the day, they're accountable to the, to the party. Um, India, we'll see. I mean, in, there's so much potential in India, right? I mean, how many, you know, Tom Friedman, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go there because um, my PR people are in the back. Um, I didn't like this work. I didn't like this thing, you know, the world is flat and the Indians are going to take all our white-collar jobs. Do you know what percent of India is online that logs on the Internet? There's 1.2 billion people. You know how many people, you know, we're told they're going to take all our jobs. You know how many people on, in India are online? About 13, 14% of the population. That's it. You know how many people in India don't have just electricity, which means you can't get online, right? 300 million people. Now, it's pretty hot in India, right, all the time. Think of not having electricity for 300 million people. And I bring this up because... If you can't get the basics right, I don't want to put your money there. And so we'll see. And it's kind of like Beijing, China now. If you, clean, if you can't clean the air, if you can't have your milk formula be safe for your kids and your babies, if you can't have water that I trust, you're going backwards. You're not going forward. So there's very easy metrics. I can size up a country. 
And I, you know, I mean, you fly into India. Before you land, it kind of hits you, right? It's amazing. And then it follows you when you leave, when you get going up. So I love the country. I love the Indian people. They're very entrepreneurial. They're very driven. And, and I tell you, I pray for them to, to succeed. But I'm telling you, I'm, a little, I'm a little, kind of a little questionable. And they live in a very dangerous neighborhood, too. I mean, that Pakistan, that's a big issue. But we'll see with a new leader. They got some new vitality, some new energy. But I've seen this movie before. In terms of the workshop of the world, clearly now China, the cost of goods going up uh, because of the cost of labor and everything else in the RMB, uh, and it's not going to go to India for some of the reasons that you've just described. Where to? America. America. Mexico. You know, I mean, Apple's bringing some production back. Oh, it's, you know, it's 50 workers, you know, a couple, you know, pieces. But global supply chains are shrinking. The Chinese themselves are leaving and go to Cambodia, right? They're going to Vietnam. Um, so, but I just think, you know, 3D printing, right? I mean, I, someday, you know, I mean, this is what worries me with China. I'm really worried about China. They got 100 million manufacturing workers. Automation scares us, right? But when it comes to China, they should be deathly concerned, right? Because we've already, we've already ratcheted down brutally and painfully our manufacturing workforce. We're pretty taut and tight, right? And we've got 11 million manufacturing workers. They got 100 million. Who's, who's in trouble? They are. So to me, you know, when I buy a pair of sneaks in the future, I'm just going to do a 3D printing. I'm going to like upload the design, put the color on, you know, piece, you know, piece this together. Then I'm going to go down to New York City to Bowery and pick up my shoes. That's how we're going to do things, right? That's what's coming. We, didn't, we don't have time about 3D printing. You'll hear about it. It's very powerful. So I think manufacturing is becoming more customized, and you and I are going to control it more. You know, this is, I, worry, I worry about automobile dealerships, right? I mean, you know, if you go down Route 22 in New Jersey, from, from here to, I think, you know, Vail, there's all these cars sitting out there. Someday that'll be a cornfield, like not, not before, not my, and not my time, but someday, because we'll just go online and say, okay, I want this, this, and that. Kind of like the Tesla model. You ever buy a Tesla? Anyone own a Tesla? You don't go to some huge dealership. You just go to a mall, or you go online and say, okay, take this, this, click, and then you got a car. You're getting cute. So that's, so the, the, the factory, the, there is no factory of the world anymore. The factory of the world is you and I. Whoever has the mic. Right here. We have a, we have a $17 trillion economy. We have 17 trillion in debt. The Treasury's sitting on three to four trillion of our own debt. We've created a sugar high. It's obviously inflated assets. How do we get out of this uh, over the next five, 10 years? I don't know if I got enough time to explain all that, to unpack that. But no, it's a great question because it's, 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 you know, now's the time to seize the moment, definitely. Uh, first of all, you know, that, that 17 trillion, you see, trick, trick, you know, click, click, click. You know, I, there must be a lot of squirrels behind that guy that, on cable. That's the wrong number, right? That's not, to me, the right number. Our gross public sector debt as percent of GDP is around 72%. If that number was right, it'd be above 100%. We'd be better, worse than Greece before the crisis. That $17 trillion includes some of the money we owe ourselves. Now, we still, you know, whether we pay it or not, we'll, we'll, the piper will be paid at some point. But to me, 72% of GDP is, is not great. In fact, in 2007, before the crisis, it was 40%. That's very good, comfortable level. 40% of GDP, our gross public debt. So, but nevertheless, what worries me, and to your point, it's a very good question and a good point. Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, defense, and interest payments, right? That takes 85 cents on the dollar that we have to spend. Think about it. 85 cents on the dollar. Defense spending is coming down. We pay $200 billion in interest, which is dirt cheap relative to like what the cost of capital is today. But Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, if we have no political willingness to take that on, then the price gets higher and higher, the burden gets heavier and heavier, and we may at some point find ourselves in a, in a bigger, deeper hole. But we have the wherewithal to make things better. I mean, I will go out on a limb and say, perhaps fiscal year 2015 and 16, if we did a little things right, like immigration, trade, and energy, I'm going to go out on a limb. It's not U.S. Trust forecast, but I bet you we could be running budget surpluses in two or three years. And we did it, right? We did it between 1998 and 2001. Remember when Alan Greenspan wondered out loud that surpluses were becoming too large? I'm sure he wants that one back. <laughs> he did, though. As Fed chairman, he was worried, like, wow, these surpluses are getting too large. The CBO came out and said, like, wow, we're going to just, there, won't, there will be no debt you know, when we get into 2015. Well, here we are. For lots of reasons, here we are. So it's growth 
And this is where I think where Bernanke got it right and how we unwind his balance sheet. You know, that, 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 the, the economists will do, be doing dissertations on it forever. We can unwind it, unroll it, you know, slowly but surely. But growth is the way, is the tonic by which you start to work your way out. That's the difference between the United States and Europe, right? They cut. We spent. We, we went QE whatever. They're just starting that. When you expand the pie, you have, start to have the tools to work down the debt. We ran a trillion dollar deficit four years in a row. Now it's coming in less than 500 million. Now that's still a big number, but it's better than one trillion. As a percent of GDP, it keeps coming down as well. So if we can get this economy above 3% growth, which I think we can, and sustain that, we're going to be running, running budget surplus. And if Yellen wonders out loud, these surpluses are getting too large, run. I wanted a, a question that follows on the previous one, but I wanted to expand it worldwide. And I'd like you to talk about the fragility of the financial institutions that exist in places like Europe and the, the huge debts which they have. And the question is, uh, is it sustainable because they are not taking the steps that were taken in the United States? And you are facing uh, situations in most countries where the expectations of the population are exceeding what they are willing to pay for in taxes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll try to, just in the interest of time, and we can talk after quickly. Um, you know, Spain, Italy, Portugal, Greece, even Greece, Ireland, they've made some tough structural reforms that will push out retirement, increase more labor flexibility, cut down the employment, uh, you know, insurances that come with that. Uh, there's a banking system in, in Europe. Is it fragile? I would say yes. But remember, the EU collectively is a surplus country, right? Germany has more money than China. Think about that, right? And look at Germany, Netherlands, Switzerland, I think Denmark. There's another Nordic nation, Norway. I mean, Norway. I mean, my God. Has anyone been to Norway? I mean, it's the street cleaner in Norway gets 90,000 bucks a year. It's a free. It's free. I mean, it's, it's a eureka. Um, there's a lot of cash in Europe to support the banks. Is there political will on the part of the Germans to bail out, you know, the southern part? I would say yes, because their banks own a lot of that bad debt, potential bad debt. So I'm not worried. Don't fear the Eurozone cracking up, because the Germans, I think Merkel, I give Merkel a lot of credit. I mean, she's a stubborn lady. She's got, but I think in her heart, she's a European. You know, maybe second, German first, European. But, you know, don't underestimate. I mean, I love, go, and go to Europe. I mean, they love this concept of Europe. I and mean, they complain, like, God, those Italians or God, those Belgians or French. They all like, you know, it's kind of like, it's like a family. But at the end, they're very proud. And I was very proud in, in a sense because I've a lot of done work a lot with the EU. I think it was 2012, 2013, 2012, 2013. The EU won the Nobel Peace Prize. And if you understand history, you understand why that was brilliant, right? Read this book, Savage Continent. Has everyone read this book? Read The Bloodlands. You ever read that book? Read Bloodlands first, then Savage Continent. And you'll have a fabulous appreciation of Europe today, because that place was just torn apart, war after war, and then after the wars. Bloodlands, Savage Continent, put that on your reading list. And when you read those, you would admire and you'll, you'll respect what those people have done, despite being a dysfunctional family. But you know, wh what family is not dysfunctional? Okay, couple, we have five minutes. Okay, go ahead. You got the, you got the mic. Who's got the mic? Okay, well, I'll go here first. I, I want you to uh, thank you. I want you to go back to your son and all Do we of have our, to? Our collective sons. No, go on. You go can on. make it collective. Our collective sons and growing grandchildren and wonder what, given all the, your profoundly intelligent view about the world is, that you would, would lead you to give what kind of advice about where young people, present college graduates, should think about their future in a massively and radically changing world. You know, that's a good question. I get the glad question from my clients. You know, say, they always say, you know, Joe, should my, should my daughter learn Spanish or, you know, Mandarin? And, and that's, I, seriously, and I say, like, try English. <laughs> try English, right? You ever, you ever correct a paper from a senior in college? It's horrible. It's, it's unbelievable. They can't write. They, I mean, I, 500 words. I mean, it's all over because they don't write, even on the computer. I just learn English. Learn how to communicate. Learn English. I mean, that, that's my first, you know, tell your son or daughter, just learn. And I, I've imparted that on my kids and my students. I mean, I, I've had some great students, but they, they can't write anything. And when they're done with the class, they can't. Uh, travel. They have to travel. I'm not talking to Cancun on spring break. 
right? I'm talking Myanmar, I'm talking you know, Tanzania, go down to South Africa, you know, go out to Patagonia, I mean, travel. You cannot understand the world unless you've seen it, smelled it, touched it, experienced it. Um, what else? You know, digitally, yeah, I mean, you, you have to constantly reinvent yourself. And I know a lot of our, my students, you know, they're exhausted probably from partying after four years of college. And they think they're going to go work for J.P. Morgan or Goldman or Bank of America. I always remind them, like, yeah, that's great, but you, you have to constantly get up every day and reinvent yourself. Reinvent. Be your own franchise. So learn how to speak and write English, travel, and understand that you're your own franchise because there's no one behind you. It's just between, it's, it's you and the mirror. There's no one else behind you unless, you know, they're a trust fund, you know, whatever. But that's important. You gotta, it's, it's on them. Right to stay up, re, re, reinvent themselves. Everyone has to do that. And the people who get left behind are people like, oh, I, I got a job at Goldman Sachs. I'm good forever. No, 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 no. Someday the computers take out your job. There's a reorganization. There's a financial crisis. You get thrown on the street and like, oh, my God, what, what was me? So I would start there. Three things. English, travel, reinvent yourself. Um, I was, this is on, I think, the income inequality argument running through everything now, Thomas Pinkety's book, I guess two parts to the question. One, do you, how valid do you think this whole conversation is? And two, long-term effects and what can we do about it? I was hoping we get out of here before that name came up. <laughs> uh, but no, good question, good book. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I'm, I'm halfway, through, I'm struggling getting through it. Because um, I jumped ahead when he wants to impose, you know, a, a tax on anyone above 500,000 like that. Well, that's, they, he's gone beyond the French. You know, that, that's so French, it's incredible. Um, it's not going to work. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's totally, it's not even within the realm of possibility. Income inequality, um, yeah, I mean, is, is, it, is it out there? Sure. I mean, there's a spread between, yeah. Wages have been stagnant. If you're an owner of capital, you've done fabulously well, not only in the last five years, but in the last, say, five decades. Workers are being left behind. We've got to retrain them. We've got to pull them in the 21st century. There's no doubt about that. But there's lots of reasons for income inequality. It's information technology. It's globalization. It's the public school sector. Um, it's how we treat girls, right? They're supposed to be a home act. Well, let's put them in science, right? Let's, do, you know, let's kind of rethink what we're doing. Let's not laden students with a $200,000 history degree, or laden his father with it, uh, and not get the return on the investment. So we, th there's ways we can fix this. I hate when it becomes politicized. Um, the book is, you know, push forward the conversation in a good sense, and that's always good. It's always good to have a good debate about it. But income inequality exists. I think it's always existed, but we, we, got, we can't just kind of put it off to the side. We've got, we got, we got to be smart about the solutions, and there's solutions out there. That, that's, that's important. Okay, I think we have time for uh, one more. One more question, comment? Anyone? Who's got the mic? Who's ever got the mic? Last question. Washington, D.C. Oh. Any hope? <laughs> Any hope. Good, good, good way to end it. You know, it's, that's up to you and I, to a degree. I mean, I, I, do, you know, to, I, don't, I don't like you know, big money politics. Um, I don't like how districts are redrawn in certain states where you know, no one ever seems to you know, knock out the incumbent. Um, but at the end of the day, we still have a democracy. I still believe in democracy. Some are questioning it. Um, but we have to demand more accountability. The 113th Congress, let, let, I don't want to end on a bad note, but I guess we will. Uh, one of the most inefficient, unproductive, divided bodies known in American history. But we put them there. That's on us. Um, the president has tried. Um, I could throw, throw some blame at him, but Republicans, Democrats. And, and I'll just end by saying I'm optimistic. Because you know why? Because we got a great corporate sector. we got great people in this room who give, right? The most charitable people on planet Earth are Americans. So at the end of the day, the corporate sector, you and I, will keep this great American dream alive, with or without Washington. And the best example of that is the energy revolution. We upturn the global energy equation without Washington. And that tells you the effect we can have if we just keep our head down, get up, go to work, take risks, and push ahead. So don't let Washington get you down. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll drag them along, you know, and we'll, we'll change them. You know. but, but, but Washington's important, though. I mean, wa I, and, I don't want to slam what, because we need an efficient government, right? I mean, I'll, I'll just say, you're, you're, how many, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to ask, how many people have an iPhone, right? A lot of people have iPhone, right? There's 12 technologies that came out of the public sector, NASA, Defense Department, that Apple commercialized to their advantage and made a fortune. 
so you know, the, all, the, the greatest angel investor has always been Uncle Sam, right? You should realize that. The greatest angel investor that pushes on the frontier, the internet, space, healthcare, has been Uncle Sam. So we need an efficient government to get back to work. So let me just end there before I get another rant. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.